Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks. This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan Conkey. Chapter 17, Protestantism and Science, Reviews of Peter Harrison's The Bible, Protestantism and the Rise of Natural Science, Cambridge University Press, 1989, and Alfred W. Crosby's The Measure of Reality, Quantification and Western Society, 1250 to 1600. There have been many attempts to explain the rise of the highly developed scientific culture of the Western world since the Reformation that link this development with the religious changes produced by the Reformation itself. There have been, perhaps, as many attempts to explain this development that do not link it directly to the religious changes produced by the Reformation. Harrison's book falls into the former category, Crosby's into the latter. Harrison's fundamental thesis is that the change of hermeneutic method of reading the Bible produced by the Reformation, namely, from a highly allegorical to a, quote, literal, unquote, reading, led to the demystification or de-allegorizing of the natural word, replacing Western society's view of the natural world as a system of symbols, the ultimate purpose of which is to point to the higher spiritual meaning with a mechanical model of nature. Behind this change was the understanding that God has revealed himself to mankind in two books, the book of scripture and the book of nature, that is, the created order. Prior to the Reformation, both these books were read allegorically. The physical phenomena of nature were explained in terms of what they signified or pointed to, not in terms of causation and how they function in the world. After the Reformation, both the Book of Scripture and the Book of Nature were beginning to be read literally. The Reformers' insistence on a, quote, literal, unquote, rather than an allegorical reading of the Book of Scripture, led unwittingly, but inevitably, to a, quote, literal, unquote, rather than allegorical reading of the Book of Nature. And it was the abandonment of the allegorical reading of the Book of Nature that produced the modern scientific worldview, that is, a reading of the phenomena of nature in terms of causation and their function in the world, rather than their spiritual significance. By overturning the symbolic worldview of the Middle Ages, the Reformers facilitated the development of modern natural science. That is, they freed the study of the natural world from a system of interpretation that assigned meaning to objects as allegorically pointing to higher realities that are not related to the specific functions of those objects in the natural world. The following lengthy quotation from Harrison's introduction explains this. Quote, the emergence of proper natural history was not simply the result of stripping away unwanted and extraneous symbolic elements, leaving a core of pure and unadulterated science. Rather, a new conception of the world 
itself premised on a particular view of the meaning of the texts, was to drive a wedge between words and things, restricting the allocation of meanings to the former. Only then was a genuine science of nature gradually able to occupy the territory vacated by the humanities, ordering the objects of nature according to new systemizing principles. The new conception of the order of nature was made possible by the collapse of the allegorical interpretation of texts. For a denial of the legitimacy of allegory is, in essence, a denial of the capacity of things to act as signs. The demise of allegory, in turn, was due largely to the efforts of Protestant reformers, who, in their search for an unambiguous religious authority, insisted that the book of Scripture be interpreted only in its literal, historical sense. This insistence on the primacy of the literal sense had the unforeseen consequence of cutting short a potentially endless chain of reference, in which word refers to object, and object refers to other objects. The literalist mentality of the reformers thus gave a determinate meaning to the text of Scripture, and, at the same time, precluded the possibility of assigning meanings to natural objects. Literalism means that only words refer, the things of nature do not. In this way, the study of the natural world was liberated from the specifically religious concern of biblical interpretation, and the sphere of nature was opened up to new ordering principles. The mathematical and taxonomic categories imposed by Galileo and Ray on physical objects and living things represent an attempt to reconfigure a natural world which had been evacuated of order and meaning. It is commonly supposed that when, in the early modern period, individuals began to look at the world in a different way, they could no longer believe what they read in the Bible. In this book, I shall suggest that the reverse is the case, that when, in the 16th century, people began to read the Bible in a different way, they found themselves forced to jettison traditional conceptions of the world, the Bible, its contents, the controversies it generated, its varying fortunes as an authority, and, most importantly, the new way in which it was read by Protestants, played a central role in the emergence of natural science in the 17th century. Harrison makes it clear in his introduction, however, that this link between the development of modern science and Protestantism is not a direct one. He argues for, quote, an indirect, even diffuse influence of Protestantism on the development of modern science, end quote, page 8. Although he acknowledges a wide range of factors contributing to the scientific revolution, the specific agent he identifies in his study as the most important of these is the Protestant hermeneutic, that is, the stress on the literal reading of the text. Harrison traces the medieval allegorical hermeneutic to Origen, quote, Despite the considerable suspicion with which Origen's theological writings were viewed during the Middle Ages, he exerted an enormous influence on medieval thinkers through his methods of interpretation. The approach of medieval thinkers to both word and text derive ultimately from Origen, end quote, page 16. He then quotes the following passage from Origen's commentary on the Song of Songs, quote, 
Paul the Apostle teaches us that the invisible things of God are understood by means of the things that are visible and that the things that are not seen are beheld through their relationship and likeness to things seen. He thus shows that this visible world teaches us about that which is invisible and that this earthly scene contains certain patterns of things heavenly. Thus, it is to be possible for us to mount up from things below to things above and to perceive and understand from the things we see on earth the things that belong to heaven. On the pattern of these, the Creator gave to His creatures on earth a certain likeness to these, so that thus their great diversity might be more easily deduced and understood. End quote. Cited on page 16. Physical objects symbolize spiritual realities. This symbolic method was also used to read scripture. Although allegory had been used prior to Origen by the church, it was Origen who raised this method to the level of a science. Page 18. By the time of Anselm, however, there was beginning to be a renewed emphasis on the physical. Anselm's doctrine of the atonement changed the older payoff to the devil theory, a transaction between two spiritual beings, for a theory that placed greater stress on the physical incarnation. As a result, the physical world took centre stage in God's redemptive activity. This new emphasis on the physical and religious concerns also had implications for the Mass. According to Harrison, quote, Official recognition of this new emphasis came at the Lateran Council of 1215, where transubstantiation became official Catholic dogma, and, with the observation of the Feast of Corpus Christi, commanded by Urban IV in 1264, end quote, page 37. This new emphasis also led, however, to a new emphasis on the human senses. Knowledge was understood to come through the senses, that is, through bodily organs, not through ideas placed in the mind and illuminated by God. Thus, Bernard of Clairvaux, 1090-1153, stated that, quote, There is no access open to us except through the body to those things whereby we live in happiness. This spiritual creature, therefore, which we are, must necessarily have a body without which, indeed, it can by no means obtain that knowledge which is the only means of attaining to those things, to know which constitutes blessedness, end quote, cited on page 37. This led by various routes to the rediscovery of nature. Harrison gives the following definition of nature and natural science, quote, The idea of nature is that of a particular ordering of natural objects, and the study of nature, the systematic investigation of that order, thus, in turn, require new theoretical conceptions, absent from the intellectual traditions which the 11th century had inherited from late antiquity. Such conceptions were the products of new schools and new books, end quote, page 39. Understanding nature was a matter of relating the parts of nature to the whole, quote, as a single passage of scripture might be made to bear the meaning of the whole, so discrete material objects were seen to be reflections of the whole. A speck of dust, observed Robert Grosteste, is an image of the whole universe and a mirror of the Creator.
The model which medieval thinkers were to rely upon to establish such connections in nature was thus the ancient idea of the microcosm-macrocosm, a conception employed in biblical exegesis, but one which, as Plato had intimated in the Timaeus, could be applied to the world, end quote, page 47 following. Harrison attributes some importance to the influence of Plato's Timaeus. Although medieval exegetes were familiar with the microcosm-macrocosm idea in the interpretation of texts, quote, from their encounter with Plato's Timaeus, they now learnt that the microcosm-macrocosm relation could be redeployed in the natural world, end quote, page 49. One important way in which this idea was employed was by comparing the human body as the microcosm to the whole natural order as the macrocosm. Nevertheless, one cannot help wondering whether this method of description and explanation got a little out of hand in the theorising of some. According to Ambrose Pear, a 16th century surgeon, quote, just as in the big world, that is, the macrocosm, there are two great lights, to wit, the sun and the moon, so there are, in the human body, two great eyes which illuminate it, which, microcosm, it's composed of four elements, as in the big world in which winds, thunder, earthquakes, rain, dew, vapours, exhalations, hail, eclipses, flood, sterility, fertility, stones, mountains, fruit, and several diverse species of animals occur. And the same thing also happens in the small world, which is the human body. An example of winds, they can be observed to be enclosed in windy apostomas and in the bowels of those who have windy colic. And similarly, in some woman whose belly one can hear rumbling in such a way that it seems there is a colony of frogs there, the witch winds, upon issuing from the seat, make noises like cannons being fired. Nevertheless, the cannon smoke always hits the nose of the cannoneer and those who are near him. Cited on page 51, the reformers also played a role in shaping the reformation of learning. Quote, if the techniques of textual criticism pioneered by the humanists had played a role in precipitating a revolution in religious matters, nor the Protestant Reformation through its challenge to traditional authorities, was to assist in the reformation of learning, end quote, page 101. In liberating the individual to read and interpret the scriptures for himself, the reformation also gave an impetus to the same freedom of interpretation in the book of nature. Ancient authorities could no longer maintain their credibility by virtue of their position as accepted tradition, Many in the 17th century called attention to the perceived link between the Reformation of Religion and the Reformation of Learning. Quote, in 1605, Francis Bacon had observed that, quote, in the age of ourselves and our fathers, when it pleased God to call the Church of Rome to account for their degenerate manners and ceremonies and sundry doctrines, obnoxious and framed to uphold the same abuses, at one and the same time, it was ordained by the divine providence that there should attend withal a renovation and a new spring of all other knowledge, end quote, end quote. Page 103. However, problems soon arose with the new learning, in their own way no less serious than the old learning. According to Harrison, quote, It is frequently assumed that accommodation was a defensive strategy 
which preserve biblical authority by showing how particular passages of Scripture could be reconciled with contemporary scientific theory. Accommodation replaced allegory as a means of reconciling Scripture to other authorities. From another perspective, however, it might be said that scientific theories could actually become a way of discerning hidden meanings of particular passages of Scripture. Meanings which had hitherto been obscured because the words which expressed them had been accommodated to the capacities of more primitive minds. End quote. Page 136. Thus, Francis Bacon claimed that an understanding of the Book of Nature was the key to understanding Scripture. Harrison references Advancement of Learning, Book 1, 1, 6, 16, for this. Likewise, Robert Boyle stated that, quote, God had made some knowledge of his created book, both conducive to belief and necessary to the understanding of the written one, end quote, page 136. But it is the development of this kind of thinking which has led to many of the church's problems today. Whereas the Christian must insist that the book of nature is interpreted through the book of scripture, that is, that we understand the world around us by looking at it through the spectacles of the Bible, today the scientific community insists on reading the book of scripture through the spectacles of the book of nature. And the church in large measure has bought into this idea. The result has been the loss of the Bible as an authoritative text. It has been privatised and credited with authority mainly as an existential revelation, that is, it has become the word of God for individuals in their particular circumstances. But it has lost the status of a book that proclaims an authoritative public truth. The desire for intellectual respectability in a secular scientific environment has largely driven this failure among many modern Christians. The result, inevitably, however, is that the scientific world is interpreting the book of nature with the wrong theory, and the consequence for the church is that this erroneous theory has also been used to interpret the Bible. Whereas the reformers' biblical hermeneutic led to a re-reading of the natural world following the Enlightenment, the reverse has happened. The book of nature is now used to interpret the book of Scripture. The purpose of developing a Christian worldview in our day must be to address this problem decisively. Its aim must be to restore the proper order. But this proper order is not an allegorical reading of the book of nature. We have no desire to cast off the many blessings of science, which are certainly the true children of a Christian civilization. But certainly, the book of nature, if it is to be correctly interpreted and therefore developed and used for the glory of God and the betterment of mankind and the natural world itself, must be subjected to the Creator's authoritative interpretation of its meaning, that is, the book of nature, must be read through the spectacles of the book of Scripture. Only then shall we find its true meaning. This is the problem that Christian philosophy must address in our day. It is an essential task to be accomplished if we are to speak intelligently about the faith to the modern world. Why? The scientific worldview that developed following the Reformation replaced a world of meaning with a world of purpose 
that is, causation. As a result, modern Western man lost meaning, something that he cannot live without. So he seeks meaning in the created order, that is, he idolizes some aspect of the created order in an attempt to find meaning. Secular science has created a spiritual vacuum for Western man, and he has responded by seeking the meaning of life in science itself. Secular science has created a spiritual vacuum for Western man, and he has responded by seeking the meaning of life in science itself. The Church, because of its accommodation to secular science, has likewise been unable to fill this vacuum, except with pious platitudes, and this has produced an undernourished and feeble Church. It is not that the scientific search for purpose, that is, causation, is in any way illegitimate in itself. The problem is that the search for the meaning of human life, the cosmos and everything in it, has been reduced to the scientific task. Meaning has been reduced to causation, scientifically understood. This is a form of idolatry, since it seeks to explain the meaning of reality without reference to the God who created it. It is also immensely dissatisfying spiritually, as the modern age is proving only too well. Many are now looking to alternative idols to provide meaning for their lives. The Church, in her stupor, has failed to recognise the situation and address the issues. The problem is clear from what Harrison says on page 195 following, quote, More caution was required for the prosecution of the advantages of the Book of Nature over the Book of Scripture. One ground for superiority which suggested itself to 17th century minds was that nature was a universal text which, unlike Scripture, had been accessible at all times, in all places, to all people, to all peoples. Nature was, in the words of Thomas Brown, quote, A universal and public manuscript, the vulgar and illiterate were also able to comprehend the theology of the book of nature, while the subtleties of scriptural doctrines were likely to escape them. But of course, this is precisely incorrect. In the state of sin, the book of nature is not more accessible to all. Only when man, in subjection to God's word, sees nature rightly through the spectacles of the Bible, does he interpret it correctly? When men have tried to read the book of nature without using the spectacles of God's word to interpret it, they have embraced the grossest forms of superstition and idolatry and groped around in utter darkness and ignorance, worshipping the creature rather than the creator. And along with this, instead of exercising dominion over the natural world, men found themselves in bondage to the world around them, governed by the fear of the natural world and the spirits they believed were responsible for controlling it. Animism. It has only been the freeing of man from this animistic religion, born of reading nature without reference to the word of God, now resurrected in New Age thinking, that has enabled Western society to climb out of such darkness and ignorance. But this is a liberty that man owes to the Christian faith alone. The scientific revolution was born out of a Christian cultural matrix. It led to man's greater dominion over the world. Nature religion, that is, reading the book of nature without reference to the word of God, did not achieve this. It held mankind in a 
debilitating bondage to animism, secular humanism, and the liberation of the church in its accommodation to this secular humanism, has now inverted the proper order that produced the scientific revolution. The Bible is read through the book of nature. As a result, our culture, and the church as well, is returning to the ignorance and darkness that characterized the world before the rise of Christian civilization. The modern ecology and New Age movements, feminism, Jungian psychology, etc., embraced by the church often as much as by the world, are part and parcel of this process of reversion, this rebirth of paganism. The secularization of science and the accommodation of the church to that process of secularization is partly responsible for this development. That scientists were to be the new priests of this secular religion of natural science is clear from Harrison's quotations on page 198. He writes, quote, Reformers in religion and science alike were to insist that the true function of a priest was not the performance of ritual acts with symbolic objects, but the exposition of some authoritative text and the communication to others of information. The text given to students of nature to expound was the world itself. The image of natural philosophers as priests expounding a wordless text struck a chord with a number of 17th century writers. Henry Moore spoke of the universe as, quote, the temple of God, end quote. Fellow Platonist John Smith agreed that the world was, quote, God's temple, end quote. Robert Boyle exploited the same image, quote, I esteem the world a temple, end quote. He wrote, and, quote, if the world be a temple, man sure must be the priest, end quote. Natural philosophy, Boyle goes on to say, is, quote, reasonable worship of God and discovering to others the perfections of God displayed in the creatures is a more acceptable act of religion than the burning of sacrifices, end quote. The study of nature, he concluded, is, quote, the first act of religion and equally obliging in all religions, end quote. The book of nature and those natural philosophers who interpreted thus assumed part of the role previously played by the sacraments and the ordained priesthood, end quote. Page 198, following. But in the fallen state, the state of sin, man does not read the book of nature correctly. God, in his mercy, has given mankind the scriptures to correct this misreading. Harrison quotes Richard Baxter to this effect, quote, The pious Richard Baxter allowed that, quote, The world is God's book, which he set man at first to read, end quote. Robert South, too, wrote of Adam that, quote, He had no catechism but the creation, needed to study but reflection, read no books but the volume of the world, end quote. Yet for neither of these writers was there any suggestion that nature was an adequate source of saving knowledge of God. On the contrary, it was the human failure to discern truths in the volume of nature which necessitated the more direct revelation now to be found in the pages of Scripture. End quote. Page 202. It was the entrance of sin into the human heart that led to man's perversion of the meaning of the book of nature. Only the correcting lenses of Scripture can put his vision right. Harrison shows how the Reformation hermeneutic for reading Scripture had positive, ameliorating effects in human culture. Quote, the Christian doctrine of creation had always held that the natural world had a purpose, a purpose related to human welfare. However, 
up until the modern period, that purpose had encompassed both spiritual and material aspects of human existence. When the world could no longer be interpreted for its transcendental meanings, it was actively exploited solely for its material utility. Equally importantly, however, the central canonical text of the Western tradition contains a narrative which, when interpreted in its historical sense, presents the image of a human individual who knows and controls nature and who directly exercises a divine grant of dominion. The recognition that the paradise of knowledge enjoyed by our first parents was an historical reality, combined with the acceptance of the command, have dominion in its full literal sense, providing a vital impetus to the 17th century quest to know and master the world. Only when the story of creation was divested of its symbolic elements could God's command to Adam be related to worldly activities. If the Garden of Eden were but a lofty allegory, as Philo, Origen and Hugh of St. Victor had suggested, there would be little point in attempting to re-establish paradise on earth. If God's command to Adam to tend the garden had primarily symbolic significance, as Augustine had believed, then the idea that man was to re-establish paradise through gardening and agriculture would simply not have presented itself so strongly to the 17th century mind. If dominion over the animals was thought to be an oblique reference to mastery of the passions, then Baconian notions of reproducing the effects of nature through knowledge of efficient causes would never have been allied with the necessary religious motivations. If the command to be, quote, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, unquote, was taken to refer to the cultivation of virtues or, or, quote, fruits of the spirit, end quote, then there would be no onus on the human race to colonise underutilised lands. If the fall were not an historical but a cosmic event in which souls fell into bodies, then its consequences would be difficult to reverse in the present life. Now that Genesis was regarded primarily as historical narrative, however, the divine imperatives it contained could be read unequivocally, end quote, page 206 following. Thus, the reformational reading of the creation and fall as historical events indirectly helped to stimulate scientific advancement and progress for the Western world. But Harrison does not leave it here. There is another interpretation of the effect of the reformers, quote, literal, end quote, interpretation of scripture, namely, that it led to religious bigotry and hostility towards the sciences, see page 276. Harrison argues against the idea. He writes that, quote, the 17th century dispute was more to do with the rights of individuals to make their own determinations about how the books of nature and scripture were to be read. Galileo himself adopted a literal approach to scripture, albeit one which allowed for a certain amount of accommodation on the part of the biblical authors. The mistaken premise of this version of history, the one that sees Reformation hermeneutic as a hindrance to scientific development, is the assumption that to read the Bible literally is to consider the Bible to be literally true, end quote, page 267 following. According to Harrison, quote, the triumph of the literal approach to scripture opened up for the first time in the history of the biblical interpretation, the real possibility that parts of the Bible could be false, end quote, page 268. 
He argues that it was the desire to secure the truth of every word of Scripture that led to the adoption of the allegorical and tropological hermeneutics in the first place. By adopting this approach, medieval scholars could reconcile the biblical texts with themselves and other authorities. With the abandonment of the allegorical method, quote, the text of Scripture was for the first time exposed to the assaults of history and science, end quote. Page 268. Thus, Harrison concludes that, quote, While the Protestants' insistence that passages of Scripture be given a determinate meaning proceeded from the purest of religious motives, they were inadvertently setting in train a process which would ultimately result in the undermining of that biblical authority which they so adamantly promoted. End quote. Page 268. What are we to make of this? First, we need to consider the meaning of the term, quote, literal, end quote. I have used the word, quote, literal, end quote, above in quotation marks. Some explanation of this is needed. The reformers' stress on the literal interpretation of Scripture must be understood in its historical context. The point needs to be made because modern evangelicalism and fundamentalism has a doctrine of literalism which does not quite correspond with that of the Reformers. The literal reading, as understood by the Reformers, should be defined against the highly symbolic, allegorical reading of Scripture prevalent in the medieval era and before, and the corresponding allegorical reading of the Book of Nature. According to Harrison, quote, Overall, evidence from medieval commentaries supports Chenu's assertion that throughout the Middle Ages, systematic allegorizing had universally destroyed the literal text of Scripture, end quote, page 111. But the, quote, literal, end quote, reading is the natural or plain meaning, the meaning of the text without its being subject to layer upon layer of allegory and trope. This does not mean a literalistic interpretation. The idea of a literal meaning must be understood against the backdrop of centuries of allegorizing that obscured the plain meaning of the text. It was the plain or natural meaning of the text that was understood by the term, quote, literal meaning, end quote. In contrast to the allegorical interpretation, the reformers championed this literal interpretation. As Harrison correctly states, their intention was, quote, to deny the indeterminacy of meaning of canonical texts, and thus to insist that each passage of Scripture had but a single fixed meaning. End quote. The point is extremely important. Quote, Protestant exegetes were to use a variety of terms to express this approach literal sense, grammatical sense, historical sense, plain sense. It was always possible that such an approach would lead to a situation where the single sense of some biblical passage was not strictly in its literal sense, as, for example, in the parables of Jesus or the prophecies of Revelation. Protestant, quote, literalism, end quote, thus needs to be broadly conceived as an assertion which usually, though not invariably, will lie with the literal sense, end quote. The term, quote, literal meaning, end quote, is not a propitious one for us today, however, the modern evangelical fundamentalist emphasis on a literal reading has lost this context. It repeats the verbiage 
but no longer understands the context and therefore the real meaning of the terminology. As a result, the language of the Bible is often not allowed to function in the way it was intended to function because the text is forced into a literalistic straitjacket, even when apocalyptic and poetic language is used, thus distorting the meaning of the text, just as much as medieval theologians distorted the text by their allegorical reading of non-allegorical types of biblical literature. In other words, the kind of literalism espoused by modern evangelical fundamentalism does not often get at the plain meaning of the text. Indeed, often the result of such a literalistic approach is nonsense, not the correct sense. Repeating the Reformation dictum that the literal sense is the correct sense will not save evangelicals and fundamentalists from such error. Decontextualized shibboleths from past ages do not help the cause of truth in our own age. The only way to avoid such errors is study and understanding, namely the use of the mind in God's service. A task that modern evangelical fundamentalism, with its heavy accent on anti-intellectualism, has shown itself unwilling to embrace. The reformers' use of the term, quote, literal meaning, end quote, and the modern evangelical fundamentalists' use of the same term are not exactly equivalent. The cultural context must be taken into account in this matter. In fact, much reformed exegesis of scripture could not be classed as literal in the modern evangelical fundamentalist sense, but neither is it allegorical in the medieval sense. Second, however, we must also consider whether the seed of modern evangelical fundamentalist literalism was not present in some degree in the reformer's literal method. Can the Bible really be read in a monohermeneutical fashion, whether literally or allegorically? Does not scripture actually use a very wide range of types of literature? Of course, the reformers recognised this in their exposition of scripture, though not all to the same degree. One is reminded of Luther's insistence on the literal meaning of, quote, this is my body, end quote, and not necessarily in a self-conscious way. The purpose of hermeneutics is to get at the meaning of the text. To adopt a literalist approach at the outset is equally as unsatisfactory as adopting an allegorical approach. In our interpretation of scripture, we must pay careful attention to the kind of language that is being used. It is no better to read the Bible only in a literalistic way than it is to read the complete works of Milton in a literalistic way. He wrote both prose and poetry. We must respect both types of language and read appropriately if we are to understand him properly. Likewise with scripture, except that scripture is more complicated in places because it uses forms of literature, such as apocalyptic, that are very unfamiliar to the Western mind. Third, in a section entitled, quote, Learning the Language of Nature, end quote, Harrison points out that the language of science is mathematics. Quote, the nature of physical objects became insignificant in accounts of their behaviour. Order was to be imposed on the objects of nature, not through an understanding of their essential qualities, but through the discovery of the laws which they obeyed. These laws were external to their natures and were demonstrable mathematically. The identification of mathematics as a language of nature 
was the final stage in the imposition of the new ordering principles to which physical objects were subject. It represents, on the one hand, the last stage in the evacuation of meaning from the natural world, and, on the other, the triumph of mathematical physics, the most conspicuous feature of the scientific achievement of the 17th century, end quote, page 262. But mathematics is not the ideal language that many hoped it would be. It does not explain everything. Indeed, it does not explain at all. It merely describes. It is unable to provide mankind with the meaning he desires. Hence the futility of reading the Bible as a scientific text, since the Bible speaks about meaning. It gives us the history and meaning of the creation, fall and redemption. Mathematics. Science cannot do this. Science is an abstraction from the whole, a partial truth. It describes an aspect of reality. Valid in its own sphere, though it is, it cannot provide mankind with meaning. Thus, Harrison writes, quote, The 17th century quest for a language of nature, a real character, a universal language, signifies an awareness of the absence of ordering principles in nature, they are not merely attempts to revisit the encyclopedic knowledge of an Adam, who through literal readings of Genesis had been reborn in the 17th century imagination as a polymath and scientist, but also to repair the gulf between words and things, a division which, for the 17th century, was the legacy of the fall and Babel. Mathematics, it must be said, fulfilled only some of the functions of the ideal language it did not penetrate to essences, it did not grasp natures, it did not provide meanings, it seemingly failed to grasp the full significance of living things. At the very beginning of the medieval period, the Book of Nature was written in symbols which were laid in with various meanings, but which were not related to each other in any systematic way. Nature was a vast lexicon in which objects were given meanings, but Grammatical and syntactic linkages between the elements of the language were completely absent. By the end of the 17th century, the wheel had come full circle. Natural objects had been stripped of their intrinsic meanings, and even their qualities and essences are gone. In the physics of Descartes and Newton, simple natural objects are denuded of all but basic quantitative properties, end quote, page 263 following. And yet, man seeks meaning above all. He cannot live without it. The idolatry of science and mathematics has not provided that meaning. Science deals with physical causation, that is, it describes second causes. The Bible cannot be read scientifically in this way. It speaks of the meaning of life, of creation, fall, redemption. Modern scientific man thinks the truth can be found only in mathematics. A good example of this was Bertrand Russell, who wrote, quote, I came to philosophy through mathematics, or rather, through the wish to find some reason to believe in the truth of mathematics. From early youth, I had an ardent desire to believe that there can be such a thing as knowledge, combined with a great difficulty in accepting much that passes as knowledge. It seemed clear that the best chance of finding indubitable truth would be in pure mathematics, end quote. B. R. Russell, Logical Atomism, in A. J. Iyer, Editor, Logical Positivism, The Free Press of Glencoe, 
1959, page 31. Then, modern scientific man, convinced that only mathematics can describe reality and show us the truth, comes to the Bible, which does not use mathematics, the language of science, to proclaim the words of life. In his disgust, modern man throws up his arms and walks away from the Bible, cursing it, because it does not bow to his idol, and demands instead that he bend the knee to God and humbly confess his sin, his need for Jesus Christ, and his reliance on God's revealed word, if he is to know the truth about the world in which he lives and seeks to understand. But he will not accept that the Bible speaks truth, that it speaks about God's action in history, because it does not accommodate itself to his idolatry of the created order, namely the belief that science, mathematics, is the infallible source of all truth. It is this idolatry of science, the search for the meaning of the cosmos within itself, that is the source of so much of modern man's inability to believe the Bible to be historically true. The Bible is not deemed to be historically true because it does not speak the language of modern scientific idolatry. The answer for modern man is not the abandonment of science, however, or of the language of science, mathematics. It is, rather, his submission, and the submission of all human thought, including science and mathematics, to the Word of God. Harrison's book is an immensely stimulating and informative read. It throws up questions that the Church needs to think hard about and deal with. It is highly recommended. Crosby's book seeks to describe the effects of the rise of a highly developed sense of quantification on Western culture. The book covers many fields of learning and art, from the development of measured music notation and form to double-entry bookkeeping, algebra, cartography, perspective in art, the invention of the clock, etc. He shows how the quantification of time and space and the development of mathematics affected the developing perception of reality in the later medieval and renaissance periods. He argues that it was the quantification of reality that led to the new, that is, modern, model of the cosmos. During this period, quote, Western Europeans evolved a new way, more purely visual and quantitative than the old, of perceiving time, space and material environment, end quote, page 227. The book is a description of how this change of perception happened and how it affected the various fields of study and art. He does not attempt to penetrate to a religious or any other kind of motive at work during this period of change. Nevertheless, the book is fascinating and well worth reading for the number of examples he gives of how our modern perception of reality differs from that of the ages prior to the Renaissance. For example, Prior to the development of modern mathematical ideas of quantification during this period, an emphasis on precise numbering was not common and not always easily achieved until the introduction of Hindu-Arabic numerals into the Western counting system was a revolution, but for some time the old Roman numbering system was used in conjunction with the Hindu-Arabic numerals. Quote, Sometimes Europeans would adopt Hindu-Arabic numeral place value and the zero, but express them with Roman cap- but express them with Roman capitals, a particularly confusing compromise. Roman numerals I V zero I I is and 
How would you ever know, unless told, 1502, that is, I in the thousand slot, V in the hundred slot, none in the ten slot, and two in the digit slot? The painter Dirk Bouts placed on his altar at Louvain the number MCCCCC4XVII, which designates what? My guess would be 1447. What is yours? End quote. Page 115. Of significance is the fact that in the medieval period, rough estimates, rather than exact numbers, were widely accepted as accurate enough for many purposes. Quote, Recipes for making glass, chalices, organs and other things included very few numbers, quote, a bit more and quote, a medium-sized piece, unquote, were precise enough. Medieval Europeans used numbers for effect, not accuracy. End quote. Page 40 following. To give one's age as 90, when he was 87 or 93, was deemed accurate enough. This shows how we must be careful not to read books written at a time prior to the rise of modern scientific exactitude with the same kind of assumptions about mathematical criteria that we should adopt in reading a modern text. Such anachronistic reading of scripture, for example, has led many to doubt the historical veracity of scripture and its divine inspiration. But the problem is not with scripture, rather it is with the use of anachronistic criteria to determine the meaning of scripture. Are not many of the problems modern, quote, scientific, unquote, pedants claim to experience in reading the Bible really problems created by their own anachronistic insistence on reading the text of the Bible in the same way one would read a post-enlightenment text on science? In other words, are they not really problems created by their own idolatry of a particular aspect of the created order, an abstraction from the whole, which blinkers them from seeing the whole picture? There are a number of places in Crosby's book that throw further light on Harrison's work. For example, Crosby refers to the resurgence of Neoplatonism at the time of the Renaissance, under the influence of men such as Nicholas of Cusa, who tried to find God by squaring the circle, Leon Battista Alberti and Piero della Francesca, quote, Vincino, his colleagues, and their like across Italy, provided the intellectual milieu for a revival of the Platonic faith that numbers, quote, have the power of leading us toward reality, end quote, and that, quote, geometry is knowledge of the eternally existent, end quote, Page 179, he also quotes Galileo, quote, Philosophy is written in this grand book, the universe, which stands continually open to our gaze. But the book cannot be understood unless one first learns to comprehend the language and read the letters in which it is composed. It is written in the language of mathematics, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Without these, one wanders about in a dark labyrinth. End quote. Page 240. Precisely wrong. Philosophy is a love of wisdom, and wisdom cannot be achieved merely by means of the technology of numbers, because wisdom is not written in the language of numbers. Man's search for wisdom and knowledge in the language of mathematics is vain. Compare the quotation from Bertrand Russell above. 
Wisdom seeks the answer to the question, why? Not the question, how? Science seeks properly to answer the question, how? But fails miserably to provide any kind of answer to the question, why? Only wisdom can provide the answer to the question, why? And wisdom begins with the knowledge of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10. It is in the word of God revealed to men in terms of propositional truth that men find wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2 verse 6. To search for the universal language in mathematics was and is a complete failure because its premise is at heart the rejection of God's revealed word as the final answer to the deepest questions that man asks about life and meaning. Crosby's book is full of interesting details. On the section on the adventure of the escapement, for example, we read, quote, Some of the most spectacular clocks ever made were constructed within the first few generations after the invention of the escapement. The famous Strasbourg clock, begun in 1352 and finished two years later, told the hours and included an automated Australabe, a perpetual calendar, a carillon that played hymns, statues of the Virgin with Christ Child, and three worshipping magi, a mechanical rooster that crowed and flapped its wings, and a tablet showing the correlation between the zodiac and the parts of the body, indicating the proper times for bloodletting. To say that this city clock told the time, and to say no more, would be like saying that its cathedral stained glass windows admitted light and saying no more. End quote. Page 85. Both Harrison's and Crosby's books make for fascinating reading for very different reasons. The information they provide on the emergence of modern Western culture is very valuable for anyone who wishes to understand the religious crisis of the modern age. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.